Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the Scanner studio today are Caroline McIntyre and Becky Stone. They're both associated with Greenville Chautauqua. And Caroline is on the staff there, but she's also, during this Chautauqua series, portraying Rachel Carson. Becky Stone is going to be portraying Maya Angelou. Caroline, let's do a little bit of history of Chautauqua for folks out there. I mean, it's been going on in this country since before the Civil War. What is it? It's a uh, chance to experience our history and our literature. Um, It started back in the late 1890s when a bunch of Methodists decided that their Sunday school teachers needed a a bit more education. So they put together a a resort in upstate New York, and they gave the uh, people um, classes in literature and English and um, religion. And they also realized that they came with their families. And so the wives and the children had to have something to do. So they organized concerts and recreation. And they started an institute in upstate New York on Lake Chautauqua, um, which still exists today that you can go to and have a wonderful vacation at. In the 1900s, they decided that this was such a wonderful idea that it should be brought out across the country. So they put on the railroads acts to go out to small places like Greenville. Um, Every summer for two weeks, Chautauqua would come, and it was the greatest event of the summer. Uh, In fact, my mother and my father both worked in Chautauqua. My mother was a singer. My father sold tickets, and they toured the country. It was how presidents got out into the country to give their speeches. That lasted through the 1900s. And then in about 1970s and 80s, we recreated that by going to places like Greenville and having a festival of historical interpreters, similar to the speech on stage, uh, music, and a chance to get to know people from the past in real time. All right. So you mentioned that Your parents were with the original Chautauqua. So how did you end up in Greenville? Uh, Well, my sister uh, picked out Greenville as a place to retire to. She was a teacher. And uh, we happened to find that there was a Chautauqua here. 1999, 18 years ago, uh, there was a small event behind the Peace Center where several historical interpreters came. We brought my mother, and we had a wonderful time, volunteered for the committee, and we've been on it ever since. All right. And Becky Stone, a little bit about your background. Where are you from, and how did you get involved with Chautauqua? Well, I grew up in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and moved south about 38 years or so to have a family. And I became a storyteller at that point. I'd never heard any formal storytelling up in Philadelphia, but uh, in Asheville, in the mountains, um, there's quite a lot of excellent storytelling going on there. And... The Greenville Chautauqua was looking for a Chautauquan, an interpreter, to do Polly Murray. She's little known, and I guess there just weren't any interpreters doing her. She's a a black North Carolinian who was an attorney and had an illustrious career through the civil rights and feminist movement, but very few people know about her. And they contacted the library system in Asheville and asked if uh, there was a black storyteller who could do the scholarship involved with uh, Chautauqua. And I was suggested, and we talked, and that was my first Chautauqua character. Uh, They gave me a year to do the research and to prepare, but I certainly call on my—I have an acting background. I was a drama major at Vassar College, Mm -hmm. and uh, I call on my acting background as well as my experience as a storyteller to bring these characters to life. And and I've had the chance to do Harriet Tubman, Rosa Parks, and now um, Maya Angelou. And, of course, Harriet Tubman was in South Carolina during the Civil War. She certainly (laughs) was. The raid up the Cumbie River Um, is a story that most people don't know. And when I go to do Chautauqua out in other places, I I beg for the chance to to do a workshop or something on that story because uh, most people don't know about her Civil War exploits here. So you do Chautauqua outside of South Carolina and North Carolina? Yes, I've had the the chance uh, to do it primarily in Colorado, and I'll be going to Ohio with Rosa Parks this summer. Okay. Well, let me ask you this. 
and this is an administrative question, I guess, Caroline, do you pick the characters that are going to be, or for example, does Becky say, I want to do Maya Angelou, and then she comes, how, how do you select the, the four or five characters you're going to do in any given year? Well, in Greenville, we have a group of people that sit down and say, what do we want to spend a year of our life thinking about? And traditionally, we come up with a topic or um, we also know that there's certain performers that are better than others, and we ask them if they're doing new characters. In this case, our, our theme this year is the power of words. And we started out, the conversation said, oh, it's election year. We're going to have to listen to a lot of speeches. Maybe we should do American orators. I was, oh, yeah, Daniel Webster. Who wants to listen to Daniel Webster? Oh, well, there's Lincoln. Oh, yeah, Lincoln's always good. <laughs> Let's see, who else can we think of? And we came up with some orators, and but it didn't sound like it was a lot of fun. So we segued into, well, maybe what's important is dynamic speakers, people that we want to listen to, people whose words catch our imagination. Uh, so we got Lincoln. We like Lincoln, the man who redefined democracy, the man who taught us what America really was all about. His words are so profound. Okay, that's a good one. How about a newspaper man? How about somebody from the press? Walter Cronkite. Oh, yeah. I listened to him every night as a kid. My whole family centered around the TV. That's who we... So we got a press and we got Cronkite. We know a great Cronkite. We know a great Lincoln. And we said, well, how about Maya Angelou? Whose words are more powerful than hers? Okay, we got to find a good Maya Angelou. And we found a good Maya Angelou. And they said, how about Cesar Chavez? And finally we came up, how about a book that changed the world? Mm. Rachel Carson, Silent Spring. We know a great Rachel Carson. I was going to ask you, you, you got from orators, and I was going to figure out what was the hook for... Rachel Carson, and you just said it. Let's give our folks the date. This this program will air prior to the Chautauqua, and it's it's not just in Greenville because you do Greenville, Spartanburg, Traveler's Rest, Fountain Inn, Pelzer, and Asheville. You do cross into the mountains to Becky's home. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, the festival is traditionally the middle of June, summer solstice time. Great time to be outdoors in the evening. Uh, we start uh, June 16th. We go through the 25th. It's 10 days filled with morning, afternoon, and evening shows. Uh, it is in three different big cities, Spartanburg, Greater Greenville, and Asheville. In the evening, we have outdoor shows in Greenville. We put up a big tent at Greenville Tech on the weekends, and Friday, Saturday, Sunday, there's a different show each night. We also perform in Falls Park, outdoors under the sun. It's a great way of spending the evening. Uh, Travelers Rest at Trailblazer Park. Again, these are all outdoors. But we do know that Southerners sometimes have to have their air conditioning. So during the day, we go to indoor uh, places like the Croc Center, uh, Center Stage, Phyllis Wheatley Center, throughout the greater Greenville area. So uh, you can see it during the afternoon. And in the morning, all of these performers like Becky are fascinating people. They're smart. They're well-read. They're educated. They know everything about their characters. So we have coffee with them in the morning if you want to sit down and get to know the performers very well. Part of this, by, by pitching the tent, you're giving folks the atmosphere of what Chautauqua was like in the 1890s, unless our tents are air-conditioned. Uh, no, our tents are not air-conditioned. We, we uh, always have breezes. Um, it's a wonderful experience because to us, Chautauqua is not just about hiring great performers. We have great performances in Greenville and South Carolina. What Chautauqua is, is it's all about the audience. The presenter speaks for a while, then we answer questions. It's about the audience. It's about the experience, the audience. That's why we like to do not completely ancient history characters. We all sat around and listened to Walter Cronkite. I read when the, uh, the Cage Bird Sings in the 70s. I read that book. I taught school from Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. These are all things that I live through. It's important to talk about, and it helps us understand what goes on now if we talk to each other. We love having diverse audiences. As you know, that Greenville in particular has some of the most conservative and some of the most liberal people in the nation. 
We sit together under the tent, and we talk to Abraham Lincoln, and we find we have more in common than we have in difference. The tents can be a large venue, but you talked about having coffee with the characters. Is this in a a smaller crowd? Uh, this is at the Greenville uh, History Museum. Uh, Maya Angelou will sit there, and we can ask her what Becky Stone is like or what Maya Angelou is like, or we can ask her about how she got to be a performer, or we can talk intensely about uh, Maya Angelou's life in Africa. Whatever we want to ask and talk about, we talk about. And sometimes by the end of the festival, since each of these characters brings such a different way of looking at things, that we learn what the festival is about after the show, not before. Okay. All right. Becky, let's talk about it from, from your perspective mm-hmm. um, as, as a performer. The first one you did was this North Carolina lawyer. Mm-hmm. How about getting into character or then just sitting down with this group of folks and they start firing questions at you? That's the difficult thing to prepare for, the questions and the answers. I can do the research and put together a performance uh, with this summer. The focus will be on the power of words. And so I will probably focus a good deal on what what motivated Maya to write and what her process was like and share some poetry and and maybe a bit from from essays. But... um, You know, when you open it up to questions, people can ask just anything. So I will have to to know her entire life uh, really well. And at this point, I've almost completed. She was very prolific (laughs) a writer. Um, I've almost finished reading all of her uh, writings and will go back and reread and take careful notes on the autobiographies, of which she wrote seven that take her up to the age of 41 only. There's a a lot of note-taking to do, but uh, I will I will be prepared, hopefully, to have a discussion about what will be my life, because I will be Maya. I do get to a point where I identify with a character so totally it's hard to break character even, because I, I have such a personal involvement. Well, when people are sitting around talking, both of the, the characters that you will, be, you will be playing, Caroline, you'll be playing Rachel Carson, you might, might have some folks who don't like Solid Spring, or they don't like Angelo's political views. And not, I mean, South Carolinians still have manners, but they can ask sharp questions, or how do you deal with, I don't want to say somebody who's unruly, but it's just kind of pushy. Well, I think one of the things that we do, and we've learned through the 18 years we've done this, is that you have to be respectful of both the audience and the speaker, that we have people with microphones, and we ask people, sometimes people want to make a speech, especially with Rachel Carson. It's a heavy environmentalist audience, and some people want to make speeches, and uh, some people have their political views. So we constantly ask the person who's asking the question to ask a question. If you can formulate a good question, and even though you and I may differ completely, if you can formulate it as a question, then we can have conversation about this. Do you appear as a, as a group in these coffee sessions as a group, or does, it's, Becky, it, it's a morning with Becky and Maya Angelou, right? She's, she's in the room by herself, or... Because I'm thinking about having worked with live audiences. When somebody starts to make a speech, since I'm emceeing, I can say either sir or ma'am, ask your question, or I'll have Bob Ellis take the microphone gently away from them. Mm -hmm. I, I think one of the things that you do as a performer is you learn how to... That's your job. Your job is to work with an audience. Your job is to have that audience be a part of the show. For example, I once heard Ambrose Bierce Mm -hmm. get asked a really horrible question, and he gets up, he leans into the microphone, and he says, no. (laughs) That answered everything. It it called it exactly (laughs) as it is. Um, We're not here to argue. We're here to listen. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that we do, every once in a while, you'll get 
for example, Eleanor Roosevelt always gets, well, what do you think of Lucy Mercer? And Eleanor will always say, I wrote a book on manners. I think you should read it. Would you like me to mail you one? When you're in character, you can handle that very well because it is personal. And that's what we want. This history is personal. We want a variety of people in the audience. We want your pain. We want to address it. But that's what the performers skilled at. That's what they do. Back, back when I was teaching historic preservation in, in the 1970s and 1980s, a number of historic sites, Williamsburg, St. Augustine, began to use what they call living history. Somebody would portray maybe not even a named individual, but a shopkeeper in St. Augustine or uh, an enslaved person in Williamsburg. And you could, you could ask them questions. And sometimes it would be mixed results. So I'm, I have great adver- admiration for what you are doing, and particularly the two characters that you ladies are going to portray. Let's talk about the, the sea around us. Uh, Caroline, why don't you go into character? And Ms. Carson, what connection do you have with South Carolina? Well, first of all, Mr. Edgar, I'm so glad that you asked me to be here and invited me to come back to South Carolina. It is one of the finest places I've ever been to. You know I am a marine biologist, and I've studied the seacoast up and down of the entire American seacoast. There's no finer place than there is Myrtle Beach. Do you know it was exactly the first vacation I ever took? Uh, my mother and I drove down with my cat Muffin, and we stayed at the T and C Motor Car. The it's right there on King's Highway by by Third Avenue. It's right along the beach and everything. It's a lovely place. About twenty little cabins, and they all have kitchens in them. So I could bring back my uh, specimens from the beach and study them right there at the T and C Motor Car. Um, I came down there as my first vacation. I came down when I studied the sea around us. Um, you do know that book, don't you? I do. Yes, it was on the bestseller looks um, 86 times. Uh, 39 of them in first place beat out Contiki every single time. <laughs> um, and I studied the beach at Myrtle Beach for that book. And after it was published and I was on the bestseller list, I came down in March for a... Um, little vacation to settle my mind a bit. And I went out onto the beach, and I found this Portuguese man-of-war. And it was stranded on the beach. And so I got a bucket, uh, because I was afraid of those tentacles and everything, and I picked it up and I waded out into the ocean in March. It's quite cold down here in March in the ocean. And I threw it as far as I could. You know, it has no arms or legs or anything, just a little sail, and it kind of catches the wind and the tide, and it kept trying to go out and out. And I don't care what you say about animals, but you could just tell that there was this determination and grit about it, that it was determined to get out to sea. And lo and behold, after a little while, that poor little creature with no arms or legs, just a sail, it was headed out to sea. And right there on Myrtle Peach, I decided that I was going to quit my job at the government and become a full-time writer. And from that moment and that Portuguese man of war, I became an author. What were you doing with the government? Oh, well, I, you know, I graduated from college in 1928, double major, biology and English, um, but it was 1928, and uh, there were no jobs for women scientists. So I applied to graduate school, and I got into John Hopkins, and I went to John Hopkins. And in 1929, uh, well, we all know what happened in 1929. And so I had no money, and I had uh, a mother and a father and uh, two nieces and a sister, all to support on my graduate school professorship. So... I had to get a job. There aren't a lot of many jobs for girl scientists, but I managed to work my way into the Department of Fisheries, and I took the government exam, and I I was first place, so they had to hire me, even though I was a girl. 
and I became the one of the first two professional women to be hired by the government, and I worked there for fifteen straight years. And then you had that epiphany at Myrtle Beach. Well, I did have a bestseller under my belt, and I had a little money in the bank, and that helped a little. But that man of war gave me the courage to be a woman without a job and simply a profession. Wow, what a story. And Ms. Angelo, I know uh, your Southern connection, you grew up in North Carolina. Well, I actually grew up in um, Stamps, Arkansas. Oh, excuse me. Okay. I'll and think. sometime in St. Louis, Missouri. And then I've lived all over this country. I lived in California, but I ended up spending the last 45, 50 years of my life in Winston-Salem in North Carolina uh, teaching at uh, Wake, mm -hmm. at Wake Forest. Your Southern experience is clearly re reflected in, in your writing, and not all of it's been Good. You've, you've had some difficult times in your life. Well, we all have difficult times. And I, I think what, uh, what makes a difference with the measure of a man or a woman is, is how they respond to those difficult times. And I was fortunate enough to be raised by a grandmother and a mother who um, I said you had to stand up for yourself. You had to do something. You had to have the courage to go places where people haven't gone before. So I had my son, my only child, when I was 17, just as I finished high school. And I was determined to raise him on my own. And so I found work. It might have meant that I had to lie in order to get the job, but I always did every job well. I was fortunate enough to be uh, well-read and a determined person to learn as as much as possible. So even though I don't have a college degree, I've re received so many honorary doctorates from various universities, including universities here in South Carolina. Um, that I, I tend to go by at this point in my life is Dr. Maya Angelou. Right. I believe you have a doctorate as well I, that you earned. I, I earned, but I, but <clears throat> I also have been honored by some other, other colleges and universities. And that's always kind of icing on the cake. Oh, it was the cake for me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was wonderful. But um, I would like to, if I may share a poem with you that... I would love for you to do that. Okay, because I do a lot of of speaking, and I do tend to, to read from my poetry. And this particular poem, I, I often set between two different poems. I start off with Paul Lawrence Dunbar's We Wear the Mask, which... Uh, you know, the theme of that poem is is that we wear the mask that hides our cheeks and shades our eyes from torn and bleeding hearts we smile, that the black man in this country has to, to wear a, a pleasant demeanor uh, covering our pain of, ha of slavery in order to survive. And then um, I go into this poem, which I was moved to write when I, I saw some old black men sitting on park benches and men who are, were, may well have been homeless but were certainly past the prime in their lives and are overlooked and ignored and downgraded even, insulted by uh, not only white society but young African Americans who um, re resent the old Negro style of carrying yourself in this uh, white world. And then I usually close with... Um, a poem that I, I wrote when I was on a bus. I was moved to write it when I, I saw a maid 
riding the bus home from her work probably, and I was imagining this, but probably from a white home back into her black neighborhood and her home and and how these are people that we overlook, but they they are the um, the core, the foundation of our survival skills. And so that's what this song for the old ones is about, okay. these men. <clears throat> My fathers sit on benches. Their flesh counts every plank. The slats leave dents of darkness deep in their withered flanks. They nod like broken candles, all waxed and burnt profound. They say, it's understanding that makes the world go round. There in those pleated faces I see the auction block, the chains and slavery's coffles, the whip and lash and stock. My fathers speak in voices that shred my fact and sound. They say, it's our submission that makes the world go round. They use the finest cunning, their naked wits and wiles, uh, the lowly Uncle Tomming and Aunt Jemima smiles. They've laughed to shield their crying, then shuffled through their dreams and stepped and fetched a country to write the blues with screams. I understand their meaning. It could and did derive from living on the edge of death. They kept my race alive. Powerful. Thank you. And powerful. Thank you. Well, that poem leads me to ask a question or add a comment that uh, Miss Carson did in talking about, well, she was a, a, a woman scientist and nobody wanted to give a woman scientist a job. You weren't supposed to even go to graduate school, but you did. Mm -hmm. uh, but you're not only being a woman, but a woman of color in terms of your career. You had two strikes, as it were. Or did you view it that way? There were many times I had to um, overcome bias, you know, but as I moved into performing, and I was a performer before I was a writer, I... Um, that was a card I could play with much success. I'm a singer. I'm not a great singer. I'm not a trained voice. But I was known as Miss Calypso. Uh, my, my given name is Marguerite Johnson. My brother gave me the nickname of Maya, and my first husband was a, a Greek-American, Angelopoulos. But when I went into performing, we shortened it to Angelou. So I became Maya Angelou. But when I was Marguerite Johnson, I was Miss Calypso. And it was the late 50s, and Harry Belafonte oh. and all that music was moving into the States. And I was a performer who could play then that card of being from the islands and wearing a short afro before afros became popular and uh, and singing and dancing. I am trained in dance. Of course, those were the days of your hit parade. Yes. And so audiences of all backgrounds got to introduce to the Calypso. Yes. Yes. All right. Ladies, need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm speaking with Caroline McIntyre and Becky Stone with Greenville Chautauqua, but also speaking with their characters, Maya Angelou and Rachel Carson. Back to all four of you ladies. <laughs> Your Calypso, Miss Calypso, performed in on stage in... In film, in film as well. But I was working um, in, in San Francisco, and these patrons who came to my 
performance almost every night eventually invited me over. They were involved with the Purple Onion, which was a, a popular little club in San Francisco at that time. They That was a step up to perform there. I ended up at the Purple Onion. And then some performers came to see me who thought, you know, there's a tour coming up of Porgy and Bess, and they need a minor character who was a dancer. And so I auditioned and got that role, and was and that got me to New York as well as touring Europe. And once I was in New York, I met writers, and that became my new passion. And one of my closest friends is Jimmy Baldwin, and he had, took me out one night to meet his friends, Jules Pfeiffer, and at this point I've I've forgotten his wife's name, but there were the four of us sitting there, and Jimmy said, tell them something about your growing up in Stamps, Arkansas. And I shared my stories, and once I started talking, I talked the whole night. And it, it was the Pfeiffers then who connected me to um, the publishing house at that was interested in having my story set down. And... Once I did that, I know why the caged bird sings. Um, just stunned everyone by by selling, being translated into thirty languages, being, you know, reprinted and reprinted. It was it was a great hit, and that led to my writing the rest of my autobiographies. And so, you gave up the stage. I gave up the stage until I had the chance to to speak. I did some film. I've da- if someone says no one, no black woman has done this before, or um, you you are perhaps too old to to venture into this, then my first thought is I can, and I will do it, and that's what led me finally to write uh, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings because uh, I kept saying, no, no one's interested. I, I don't know how to write an autobiography. And then Jimmy said, um, you, you just need to tell her that uh, she can't. And, and so uh, Harper told me that um, no one has ever written a literary autobiography and uh, that that is of quality as literature and that just piqued my interest and i said i can do that it took 2 years and a lot of rewriting but mm-hmm. we came out with i know why the caged bird sings and when did you move to wake forest that would be in about 19 19- 77. They offered me the first um, lifetime professorship. So I am still enjoying. I only have to teach one class a semester, and it's a seminar. And uh, I only have about six or seven students. But um, for, for that, I have a professorship and a home until I die. And is that a, a writing seminar or? Yes, it is. Right, okay. Yes, it is. So you're really a writer in residence as well as professor, is that? Yes, I, you know, I hold that professorship, but okay. um, no, there there are no expectations about my continuing to write, but I, I am writing essays and. Well, I was going to say, you, you, you haven't stopped. No, I haven't. No, you do write essays, you're still doing your poetry. Um, yes. So your writing has just morphed into something else. Yes. Okay. And Ms. Carson, you never stopped writing either. I never had that choice. I am a slow, deliberate writer. I um, I write with a pencil and paper. Uh, I write best at night because you need quiet and solitude and time to roll the words around in your mouth and on the paper and with your pencil. And I've found it always best to read your work aloud. I, um, for years and years, I always had my mother, and every single word I've ever written, I have read aloud to her and seen her reaction, her emotion, because writing is not just words, 
and telling things. It's having people feel and sense and understand. And it's only by saying the words out loud and having someone hear them that I know that my words really are true. So it is a, it's a painful profession, and it is lonely. Oh, my dear. Really, we're we're very similar because I, too, write by hand with pencil on. I prefer those legal-sized yellow tablets, but I hold myself up in a hotel room and um, go in with, well, I can't do that anymore because they don't allow smoking, but several packs of cards and um, cigarettes and a stack of piles and pencils. And and I, when I need a break from the writing, then I play solitaire. And then I get back to it. So yes, it is a lonely profession, but um, what magic comes out of that just kind of being with yourself and your thoughts and your knowledge and finding the right way to express it. And as as you know, I am a scientist at heart, and I am writing science, mm-hmm. but I see absolutely no reason why science cannot be literature. Oh, of course. And that in order yes. to understand science, you have to understand the words that are written, and that you have to understand it emotionally as well as what is written down as true and false as science would say it. And many people think that uh, my science books about the ocean have too much literature in them, that you can't write literature. And um, I personally don't believe you could ever write about the ocean and leave the poetry out. Well, if you want to reach an audience larger than a few people in science labs, then yes, you need to write, you need to tell a story. I think uh, Miss Anshalu, growing up in the South with a family of storytellers, understood that. Some historians believe in telling stories. Others seem to write only for a few other academics, and their books sit on the shelves, and nobody ever reads the thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, In fact, since you are in the English department at Wake Forest? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. There were colleagues in the English department at my university who used to brag about how few copies their books sold because the fewer copies, that meant that it was so rare and so important. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I kid you not. That was They, they would brag. In fact, and, you know, they had a colleague who's no longer with them. With, he went to another university. His poetry and his books were selling 10,000 copies. Ah, that's for the common people. Uh. Henri Van Loom once told me that uh, he wished all of my books about science and the sea to become great bestsellers because then his publisher could publish his that didn't make any money. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, in in terms of the environment... um, I know you, you took on DDT, which everybody was using. They always want to talk about my poison book when I really want to talk about my beautiful <laughs> books about the sea, the sea around us, the um, edge of the sea written right here in Myrtle Beach. Well, having grown up in Mobile, Alabama, where the fire ants first came ashore, getting rid of the fire ants was something that we cared about no matter what we used. I mean, um, you know, I had cousins who who had farms, and if if a cow dropped her calf in the field, the fire ants could kill it. And so getting rid of those fire ants was pretty important. Mm-hmm. Yes. The work that the government did with the pesticide program in the South was profound. The government decided that it would make all-out war upon the great red ant. And they had all these wonderful new chemicals. Beyond DDT, there's Eldrin and Dildrin and all these things and Hepacor. Well, I was talking specifically about the fire ant, not the red ant. The government called it the red ant, and we are referring to the same thing. The fire ant that came in from through Mobile, mm-hmm. you're absolutely right, from Brazil and took over the south and is still here with us and probably will be a long time since. But it quickly became resistant to the poisons that were used, and more each year, more poisons were put out. 
most of the states in the South, including Texas and Florida, begged them not to give them any more poisons. And actually, in the state of Texas, the government said that we will give you the poisons free as long as you don't hold us accountable for anything that happens with them. I never said that the use of pesticides was wrong. I said we don't know enough about how this affects everyone, but we need to do more research and perhaps a little more research about the biological control in order to save the crops. Well? I told you I didn't want to talk about the poisons. I told you I wanted to talk about the beauties of the universe and all the glories of nature, but I can't help it because I believe that everything I believe in is being destroyed, and I must speak out. Well, Ms. Carson and Ms. Angelou, let's move back to Ms. McIntyre and Ms. Stone. Okay? That was, that was a wonderful conversation and interaction, and I think you gave our listeners a taste of what they might get at Chautauqua coming up in the upstate. Greenville, Spartanburg, Traveler's Rest, Fountain Inn, Pelzer, and Asheville. Asheville. But let's get back to... Becky Stone and Caroline McIntyre. Becky, you talked about you have read everything that Maya Angelou has written that you could get your hands on, and that says a lot. It it is quite a lot. I have not read all of the essays, and um, she moved into writing essays in the in the later part of her life. And those, the essays that I've read, some of them have beautiful, powerful insights into um, human behavior, into our our society. But a lot of these collections repeat the stories of her growing up Mm -hmm. in Arkansas and and her life experiences. So it's not all new material. But... um, she she seems to have gone through a, a shift in her life. She's her first autobiography, and certainly all the rest, reveal that that her belief is that we don't want to think that our elders were perfect. It puts too much pressure on those coming behind. We need to have honest, open pictures of where we have failed, as well as where we have succeeded. And um, the portraits uh, that she herself draws of her early self have some hard edges, a lot of anger that uh, is not present in her essays. And it's a wonderful transition. It is connected to her deep faith in, in part, but also to her life experience that allows her to to look at the pain of race relations in this country and not be vindictive or angry or vengeful, um, just very loving. This, this preparation for this role, how long have you been working on that? I, I started reading her autobiographies in July. And I started taking notes. They are not she, – she is credited with changing the genre. She's more of a memorist than a, a, a biographer. You know, there's not a lot of dates. It's just the flow of her life and feelings. But um, I – so I quickly said, I'll need to go back and reread this and figure out what the important dates and people are. <laughs> but um, I, I started in – July and finished her autobiographies. There are seven, uh, somewhere in the, you know October, and and started to read the poetry. And the poetry is powerful, and beautiful. But I'm not a poet. It kind of goes in one ear and out the other. But I read them all dutifully and and uh, marked it was in another book from this the ones I liked. And then I started the essays, and I'm still. I'm still reading the essays. Okay. All right, Caroline, what about you? Because you have a, a full-time job as well. Well, I think one of the things that a Chautauqua performer does, and we always look at this as we're hiring people to do this, what is the depth of the background? We think it takes at least two years to really fully develop a character. You can start performing, but you continually develop that character as you 
hear your audience's questions. You find out what they need to know, and then you get excited about knowing it. And your question about reading is very profound. First, we always say you have to read everything the person wrote. In Rachel Carson's case, it's a little bit easier because she hasn't she wasn't quite as prolific as Maya Angelou is. Um, but we go back and read her publications when she worked for the government. And in fact, the, her very first published work was as a 10-year-old. She wrote, she had no money. She lived in a house that had no um, heat, no um, indoor plumbing. She was a poor kid. She sent an um, article into a magazine, and they paid her $2 for it or five cents a word. It's a single paragraph by a 10-year-old girl, and I never can read that without crying. Well, I don't know why. She just She's a little 10-year-old kid putting a, trying to get some money from a magazine, and I cry every time I read it. What was the topic of the of the? It audience? was about um, a story her brother told her about World War I aviator that um, flew an airplane. He was shot down, and he hung on the end of the um, wing to hold it steady, and the German didn't shoot him down. And it, But it just brings tears to your heart. The other thing that you always read beyond what they wrote is you try to read what they read themselves. Who influenced them? And you see from a very young age that even though she grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, she read all the great sea books some reason she was born with an affinity for the ocean. So if she read Melville. She read all of these things. That was what was on her bedstead. That's what she read. And we also, well, I certainly try to read the criticism. And, and that's been really helpful because, you know, to see what other writers and other performers thought of Maya. Oh, and Rachel's got her critics. <laughs> She's got a lot of them, and we face them in the audience all the time. Um, there are a lot of people that have a great deal to argue with Rachel about. I can just remember specifically with Rachel-inspired Stuart Udall, who wrote a book, Quiet Crisis, which really is more than just environmental. It's all about land use and what have you uh, and the myth of superabundance. Uh, I used to use it in my classes for years until it went out of print. But, of course, she was his inspiration. And none of her books have ever gone out of print. <laughs> yes. Um, it's been – it's going on. She, her, In May, she'll be 110. Uh, but her books are still all in print, even the ones that were not, you know, bestsellers until they came re reproduced. Right. Well, ladies, I hate to do this. Alfred is giving us the wind-up sign. And first, I'd like to have – a brief last comment from Rachel and Maya and then from your real person. So, Maya, last word from you. Through my life and what I hope I will pass on to everyone is that there are many virtues in life. Certainly love, generosity, kindness, faith. But to me, the most important one is courage. You don't love the way you should. You aren't kind the way you, you, you should be. So I'm hoping that part of my message to the world is the importance of courage in our lives. Okay. And Rachel? I'm often asked, Rachel, what can I do? How can I do to save our environment? I really want to do something. And I say, well, there are two things you can do. One, whenever you read... Make sure before you read it, you know who wrote it, why they wrote it, and how they make their money. But more important, every day, go out into nature. Because the more truly we understand the beauties of the world around us, perhaps the less time we'll spend with our own destruction. All right. The Greenville Chautauqua is going to be June 16th through 25th, and I've mentioned the towns. And so... Becky Stone, last word from you as Becky Stone. Great. Well, I am 
looking forward to doing Maya because I, I think uh, she's such a, a warm, um, motherly figure that it will be a safe place for us to have dialogue about race relations in, in her presence and, and during her sessions. And um, and she only died in 2014. I expect to run into, a, even doing Harriet Tubman in Colorado, I ran into tons of people who had met Maya or had been in a class or heard her speak. And so I expect a, to hear a lot of Maya stories from the people at Chautauqua this summer. Okay. And Caroline? I think one of the most important things we've missed saying is that all of these events are free. You're going to come and sit into a tent or an audience with all kinds of people that have all kinds of questions. You'll go out talking to people. You'll go home. If you bring your kids, they will talk about it for the next couple of weeks. They're going to ask you all kinds of questions. You're going to have to go look up more. You're going to want to go home and read. And that's what we want. Okay. Audiences that go home and read. Well, Becky Stone and Caroline McIntyre for Chautauqua, I want to thank you so much for being with us today on The Journal. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know I did, both talking with Becky Stone and Caroline McIntyre about how Chautauqua is organized, how they prepare for being characters and interacting with the audience. And then when they went into character, Part of it was planned when I asked questions, but then they began to interact themselves. It's an intellectually exciting experience just to watch that happen. And it's been going on for 18 years in the upstate, and it's going to happen again this June. It's a chance for individuals to interact with historic characters, ask them questions, respond to what they have to say. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.